Welcome to Today on Broadway for Monday, October 19th, 2020. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini, but I don't matter because... <laughs> I'm arts and culture writer Ashley Steve. Welcome back, Ashley. Thank how are you, you feeling? How's the throat, all that stuff? Uh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. There's no more pain. It was very touch and go for a while. Um, Might have to amputate your throat. Yeah. I yeah, I'll, t- I'll take that. I, the first couple days, I would have <laughs> gladly taken the first couple days and days six through eight, I would have absolutely taken a throat amputation. So that would have been great. Yeah. But that time has passed. We're on day 14 now. So there's still some swelling. There's some like weird stuff happening back there but otherwise pretty pretty good i'm excited to not be sick all the time anymore well, so that's very thrilling yes yeah, so well we are very glad to have you back thank uh, you you missed um a lot but also lot, but also a not and a lot because like a lot of it was like eh, okay Whatever. Tony nominations, I'm looking at you. I was going to say, that's pretty much how I felt about the Tony nominations. Yeah, exactly. It's just, eh. <laughs> exactly. Eh. One, Other than Jeremy O'Harris. Right. Of course. Uh, one thing that we are not eh about is the fact that two Broadway stars got married uh, last oh, week. hello. Company star Itai Benson married his longtime girlfriend, Aww. Alexandra Soka, uh, who's been in, um, she did Spring Awakening and most recently was in Head Over Heels mm-hmm. on Broadway. Yeah. Um, she, they got married in a small ceremony in Central Park with just a handful of people there uh, to witness. So we've got the, the very cute Instagram post uh, in the show notes if you want to check that Love out. that. Congratulations. Um, Another thing that you can check out, if you have not already, is this weekend's Angela Lansbury birthday edition of This Week on Broadway as Peter, Michael, and James paid tribute to the now 95-year-old legend. Um, I I don't... I, yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I don't even want to think about what it'll be like when she's not no. with us. So I don't I, even I think shudder about to even it. say that. So maybe you should just cut that out. But they also talked about the Tony nominations. Peter actually reviewed a show, and Michael talked about cast albums on vinyl. So always something fun. Sweet. Over at this week on Broadway, of course. If you would like to be a part of those recordings, you can head over to patreon.com slash broadwayradio, broadwayradio.com slash patreon. This coming week, on uh, this week on Broadway, I guess that would be on the 25th, the great Tony winner James Monroe Iglehart will be the guest. So if you want to be a part of that recording and be able to ask questions live while they are on the air, be a uh, subscribe to be a member of our Patreon community. Very good guest. He's a blast. He's Get fun. on that. Yeah. Former, yeah. former Tommy Moore guest, I might say. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, of course. Of course. course. <laughs> uh, all right, Ashley, let's get into the news. And let's start out with some news out of the New York Times. Last week, not only did Ben Brantley pin his official goodbye to the New York Times, but on Friday, the great lady announced that Nicole Harrington will become the paper's new theater editor. Not critic. That still hasn't been decided. We'll get to that. She has been with the Times since 2005 and has been in charge of the print weekend section since 2017, often editing pieces on theater and other forms of entertainment. However, according to everyone that knows her, apparently, theater is her first love. In March, she also participated in the large uh, New York Times project, The African-American Art Shaping the 21st Century, and Harrington will fully take over as the theater editor in the spring when she returns from parental leave. Ashley, as I said, we still don't know who Brantley's replacement is going to be Mm. as one of the Times critics, but 
it is good to see that a black woman has been given a pretty important voice in how the paper of record will be covering the theater moving forward. Yes, I would argue it's the most important voice of the section Mm -hmm. of the section, not the lead critic, as much as we like to think that criticism is the most important thing in theater having someone curating a section that i mean everything has to go through her so any or her her life uh life views and her views on art is going to are going to dictate everything that happens with the times going forward and i i can only see good things coming out of this and it's the mm-hmm. first time I've been excited about <laughs> reading the Times in a while, I loved that project back in March, the African American art shaping the 21st century. Um, so yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled about this. I'm I'm still excited to see who the critic is going to be, and you know we've already talked about our shortlists on the show before. Um, but this is this is to me uh, the bigger deal at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, the critic is someone who is forward facing, and that not only yeah, does a big deal for and they take the brunt of it. They take the brunt of it. I mean, editors are so technically behind the scenes anyway. Exactly. Uh, at anything you look at, and people don't really people who are reading usually don't really think about that. They don't think about oh, this is what this section looks like. That's not because of the writers. It's because it's first and foremost because it has to go through an editor and the editor is saying this is what I want to see in the section this is what I am uh, commissioning for this section so to have it everything going forward in the section once she takes over it's going to be based on what she sees is going to be important to cover and I'm very excited to see what she deems that to be. Yeah, I mean, the editors are the ones who really add the flavor to the content that's being discussed, while the critics are the ones who are a little bit more forward-facing. And they kind of, hopefully, with this new hire, will bring some um, forward-facing representation. So hopefully we can get um, a little bit of everything (laughs) in there, especially when we know that um, Jesse Green will still be there. We've got the white guy mm. that's already there. Let's just fill mm. in the gaps with people who yeah. are not. All right. Next up, Ashley, I discussed this uh, brewing topic with James last week, but we've had a new development in the ongoing kerfuffle between the Screen Actors Guild and Actors' Equity. Last week, we told you about how the two unions were fighting over who had the right to oversee filming of stage productions, especially during the pandemic-related shutdown when there was no actual audience to technically make it a theater production. So isn't it just a screen production being filmed in a theater it's very complicated it's a mess (laughs) well according to variety sag aftra has asked the afl cio which is the american federation of labor and the congress of industrial organizations to get involved and to name a mediator to help come to a conclusion sag aftra's president former 90210 star gabrielle carteris and national executive director david white sent out a message to their membership saying quote It is with heavy hearts that we file a formal complaint and request for a mediator in our jurisdictional dispute. Let us be very clear. This is a last resort. We tried negotiation, but Actors' Equity Association refused our waiver and walked away from talks with no notice. Now, actually, I can understand how this is a very contentious point of disagreement for both unions, especially right right now. And as I said last week with James... 
I think that they both have legitimate claims on their sides uh, sure. because when it comes to the Screen Actors Guild, like I mentioned, there's no audiences for most of these. So technically, right. it's not a theater production. But for the theater side of things, they're being filmed in theaters with theater production qualities, with theater personnel. Right. And it's also theater in lieu of theater exactly. because we can't actually have theater right now. So it's that or nothing. Yeah. And that has to be kind of the – and it is the substitution. Yeah. And that's why I was really hoping that they could come up with some sort of compromise that is acceptable to both sides, especially while, you know, like – um, mm. TV and films are still being able to be shot. There's a lot of um, yeah. restrictions that are going yeah. on, but everybody's filming now. There is still very little, if any, theater happening. So I was hoping that they would be able to find some sort of resolution and hopefully this escalation will get both sides back at the bargaining table to hopefully figure this out so that everybody can benefit moving forward. I'm, you know, I'm still a little bit outside of this and separated from this and playing catch up. So there's, there's a lot, I, a lot of my Sunday was trying to get acquainted with everything that's going on between the two right now, other than what's already been going on for the past say, eight, seven months. <laughs> I've lost track. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a mess. The only thing it does is hurt the people within the unions. I'm them saying that it's a last resort to bring in a mediator. Yes, it's a last resort, but I'm glad they're doing it because clearly this isn't going to be resolved anytime soon. If it's just the two of them going back and forth with these like catty statements that they've been doing for the past few days. I'm just, I know it's an oversimplification. I'm, but I'm basically on the side of just merge already, especially with reasons like this, everything that's happened in the past seven months, because someone is always going to get left out of the left out in the cold. Either way, for a billion reasons, we should be filming more shows or presenting online work more often. So the fact that it's a jurisdiction argument is becoming increasingly muddled. And it's just, it's silly. And so many of these <laughs> actors are already in both unions yeah. anyway. <laughs> again, it's an many, oversimplification. Many yeah. 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 Of course. And again, it's an oversimplification. Of course, there's just so, so much that goes on behind the scenes that we couldn't possibly know. But it's just on the surface, watching this happen is such a disaster. I concur. All right, Ashley, unfortunately, we have to move on to some sad news from over the weekend as we learned that Broadway actress Doreen Montalvo has passed away following a stroke that she suffered earlier this month. She was Mm -hmm. just 56 years old. Montalvo was famously the very first person to ever audition for In the Heights back when Lynn and Tommy Kale were setting it up in the drama Bookshop Basement, and she continued with the show in various roles uh, throughout the entire run of the show, off-Broadway and on-Broadway. She's officially credited as the Bolero singer, which you'll hear on the radio in the cast album, but her vocals mm. can be heard throughout the show, especially with some really memorable Spanish uh, background vocals and solos and stuff throughout the show. Mm. She was also seen on Broadway and On Your Feet and... As Janet Lundy and Mrs. Doubtfire, which obviously only had three performances on Broadway before it shut down, Rob McClure penned a wonderful tribute to her uh, on social media this weekend as well, talking about what a huge loss that was. Many other friends and colleagues expressed their shock and sadness, as well as their fond memories of of, of Montalvo on social media over the weekend, including Lin-Manuel Miranda, who said in part, quote, 
Everyone who met Doreen became her friend. She held her friends so dearly and easily. You'd go to her cabaret show and see people you hadn't seen in years, but Doreen Mm. stayed in touch with. Everyone stayed in touch with Doreen. Doreen is survived by her husband, fellow Broadway alum Michael Mann. Our hearts, of course, go out to everyone who loved her, either personally Mm. or professionally. Yeah, it's, I hadn't seen Rob's statement, but I did see Lin-Manuel's and just my heart broke for everybody involved, uh, anyone that had worked with her. Clearly, very, very clearly through all of that, uh, a vital part of the community uh, that everyone loved. So absolutely devastating to see. I've got a social media friend, someone who I've met once or twice in real life, but we're mostly online friends, but uh, she is very, was very, very close with Doreen. Um, and I know mm. she's taking this very hard. So it's, it's obvious how important she was yeah. to the people in her life, but. All right, and actually, unfortunately, we're going to have to stick to the somber theme because last week, Amanda Klutz announced that she would be releasing a book next summer called L- Live Your Life, Loving and Losing Nick Cordero. Mm. Live Your Life, as many of you will remember, was a single that Nick recorded that became one of the anthems of his fight against the coronavirus. The book, published by HarperCollins, is scheduled to be released on June 29th of 2021. Ashley, in an effort of full transparency, last week I did an interview um, of editors of a book, and I talked about how much I loved talking mm-hmm. to authors and editors of books and uh, yeah. in interviews. I do not know that I'm emotionally strong enough to actually read this book, though. That was my one and only thought while you were talking is I will be very happy to buy the book. I absolutely, I'm pretty certain that it'll sit on my bookshelf for a while because I don't know when I'm going to have the emotional energy to get to it. I I just, uh, 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 can't imagine. But hopefully uh, those of you who have a stronger intestinal fortitudes will want to uh, purchase that book. I'm sure a pre-order will be available soon as well. Yes, yes. All right, Ashley, we've had some kind of sad and disappointing and frustrating stories in today's uh, episode. Mm. So I'm going to end it with um, one less disappointing thing and one Uh thing that is definitely not a feel-good recommendation, but something that is a vital recommendation. The one that is not a downer was on Friday night, Lin-Manuel Miranda and uh, members of the original cast of Hamilton appeared in an online virtual fundraiser for Joe Biden for like an hour or so. They talked about different things about the show's development and the process that they go through from the uh, the creation to the characters and all that stuff. And then Mm -hmm. the group performed virtually in their little like zoom way performed uh, the room where it happened and encouraged people to vote. Tommy Kale also um, kind of moderated this Q&A session with the cast. Oh, cool. It's a, yeah, it's a really, really cool thing. We've got the video of their performance of The Room where it happens in the show notes. Uh, I saw I know it my, pop up. Yeah, my I mom watched the whole thing, I know, because she loves uh, Hamilton and all those folks. But um, the, the performance job, itself was really good. Yeah. So check that out. And now the thing that is not a feel-good recommendation, but is a vital recommendation. Actually, it actually comes from our mutual social media friend, Ashley Lee, ah, from the nice. Los Angeles Times. And it is an article that was released last week called 40 Black Playwrights on the Theater Industry's Insidious Racism. Now, I have reached out to Ashley, and I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to talk to her about this awesome. article this week. Um, she's obviously very busy and on a different coast, yeah. so schedules might be difficult, but we're going to hopefully going to figure that out. But... 
She bases kind of the crux of this article around a new Netflix movie called The 40-Year-Old Version. Not uh, Virgin, yes. but Version, um, which is from writer, director, and actress uh, Rada Blank, who kind of moved. This is like her first feature film after many frustrating years of trying to have a career in the theater. And in it, it kind of focuses on... Um, a bl- a white producer trying to get Blank's character's play on Broadway. And this mm-hmm. white producer kind of gatekeeps and gives all of the typical notes that we hear about white producers giving to black artists. So it's about- a documentary. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's not, but it is. Um, yeah. and so what <laughs> Ashley did in this article is she talked to 40 black playwrights about some of the things that they have experienced in their life when it comes to racism, either overt or systemic. Some mm-hmm. just some of the names are people you you have heard of: Coleman Domingo, Robert O'Hara, Jocelyn Bio, Katori Hall, Nambi E. Kelly, Keenan Scott II, Dominique Moriso, Danye R. Love, Alicia Harris, Lynn Nottage, Infoniso Udofia, and many more. One of the ones that kind of stood out to me because we've kind of been talking about this um, mm-hmm. a little bit with like P Valley and some other things going on, but Coleman Domingo, yeah. who is one of the most talented people working on stage or screen right now, either in front Correct. of the screen or behind. Um, he said, quote, I don't say this with any bitterness. To me, it seems that theaters are always looking for the next black thing, and they can only embrace and elevate one black voice at a time. So why can, true. Yeah. Why can artistic directors handle having multiple relationships with multiple Caucasian writers, but can only have one black friend? My white counterparts are constantly produced at these theaters. They can fart out a play and it gets considered <laughs> after a first reading. It feels like we're a bit more expendable. I think that's why we're losing a lot of black playwrights to spaces like film and TV. Yeah. I yeah. love the theater, but I've had to make other choices to be happy and be paid my worth. And actually, it's so Great hard quote. to argue when no, we see yeah. people like Coleman and Katori Hall and Jeremy O'Harris and many others um, going and having huge success and adulation um, oh, yeah. when it comes to writing for the screen, but still have to fight for a regular spot at the at, at the theatrical table it's it's really really disconcerting oh absolutely Uh, yeah that quote from coleman is so encompassing all encompassing it's it's one of my biggest frustrations to put it lightly is to see black artists and black writers black artists uh any writer of color have to fight for a spot in the lineup when I won't name names of other white playwrights can literally put anything they want onto Broadway. And it's not, I don't have, and I don't think that this is necessarily the fault of the white playwrights. It's the, it's the fault of the people who are making those ultimate decisions. No, 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 that's what I'm saying. It's not Lucas Hanate's fault that he gets produced everywhere. No, Uh, you know, but it's the people who are making those decisions, which is what um, the 40 year old version um, kind of talks about is the the sure. people who are the gatekeepers. So just to make sure. that clear, and I know no, that's no, no, what no. you're saying, but yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say is that a it's producers and it's it, it's the as we've talked about so many times over the past several months, it's the theater industry and systemic racism as a whole, and who gets that kind of automatic seat at the table. You even look at you you look at film and TV, and there's a lot. I mean, there's obviously still 
a lot of that, of course, we're, we're not necessarily losing people fully to stage work or to screen work rather than stage work. But, uh, you know, as already said, people are starting to flee the scene of the crime a little bit to actually get their bills paid because people aren't producing work from people of color. Uh, but you see it's, you still see it a lot in, screen where things that get produced are like here is another movie about slavery rather than just here is a story written by a black writer about whatever they want to write about. Right, and that's one of the things that Blank talks about in the article is about how artistic directors and programmers which has have an affinity for what she calls poverty porn. Yes, um, exactly. And and I think that's very true and I think the it's capitalization it's tr- on black pain. Yeah, and it's true um, with this kind of not exodus but migration for black writers from the stage to the screen, it's true with performers as well. If you look at the original cast of Hamilton, so many of the principals have moved on to have um, a lot of success or at least opportunities on screen. And while some of them have come back to the stage, you know, Leslie Odom Jr., Renee Lee Goldsberry, David Diggs, uh, Christopher yeah. Jackson, Okarite and they all have or currently have thriving screen careers, whether that's on a TV show or in films um, or or even music. Philippa has had a TV show, too, but she's actually come back yeah. to Broadway. Um, the, uh, you know, She did the Parisian Woman in between there as well. Um, mm. You know, a lot of these actors of color, um, and maybe it's a financial thing, in which case I completely support them, but it's just interesting that they, too, per- despite the success of, of Hamilton, are, are having um, a lot more opportunities to be stars and to thrive both artistically and financially on screen that you would think would be afforded to them. You would think people would be throwing opportunities at them uh, in the theater, which uh, maybe they are, but mm. it, we, we aren't seeing that right now. Exactly. Yeah. All right. That is all that we have for today. Thank you everybody for listening to today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway radio. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWMatt. Matt Ashley for people who Hi. might not be able to remember your social media <laughs> handle. Yeah. What is it? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else that no, this is Ashley. What else is there? Oh God. You don't want to know. Are you, on the, are, are you on the TikTok? No, 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 no. I, I feel like I've aged out of the TikTok. See, I, I, I'm on the TikTok, but I didn't post. I'm just there to you watch. Are I'm there to, to watch. Go- I've never posted You're there anything. to gawk. No, watch. I've, to- I've told you my favorite <laughs> TikTok people are linguists. Oh, I follow yes. so many That's linguists. Very true. That's it's very so true. it's very very interesting. Very good. See, stuff. the thing is, I, everything comes across. I'm not on TikTok. I would be for those reasons, those very nerdy reasons. But I, you know, it, everything comes across my Twitter feed anyway. So it's like mm. TikTok within Twitter. It's a social media turducken always. <laughs> Uh, social media turducken. All right. Well, everyone, don't forget James Monroe Oglehart on This Week on Broadway on Sunday. If you yeah. want to be a part of that recording, head over to patreon.com slash broadwayradio, broadwayradio.com slash patreon. All right, everybody, have a wonderful Monday and a start to your week. Um, we might have an episode tomorrow. I might have an interview with Ashley Lee. We'll play it by ear. But either way, someone will be back to talk to you on Tuesday. Tuesday.